Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to other, to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Crete and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Josh. Well, go ahead and keep uh, your Bibles open as we continue our series in the book of Acts. We've called this series, How Jesus Acts Through Us Today. And the reason why we've called it that is because the book of Acts is not merely a historical book. You know, often uh, in Christian circles, we look at the book of Acts and we get out our maps and our drawings of the Paul's journeys, the missionary journeys, that kind of thing, and go, okay, that was good for then. Uh, that was interesting. That happened. How, how wonderful. But the book of Acts is not intended merely to be a historical survey of uh, the early uh, church. Uh, It is historically accurate. We considered that in our first uh, sermon. But it's not merely a historical lesson. No, it is about how Jesus acts through us today. And in fact, Luke is telling this story. Luke, the author of Acts, constructs his book along those lines. So he begins with this uh, word from Jesus, this teaching from Jesus about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the Acts finish in Luke's story with Paul, the center of the Roman Empire, there in Rome, proclaiming boldly without hindrance the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so the story The story of Acts is how the kingdom of God began in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7, and then went to Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 to 12, and then to the end of the earth, chapter 13 to 28. But it ends on a cliffhanger. There's Paul. He's in Rome, and he's boldly preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God without, without hindrance, and it ends on a cliffhanger as Luke, as it were, turns to us, his readers, and says, over to you, over to you. Now, it's your turn to be witnesses to what Jesus has done in your lives. So the story of Acts is about how Jesus acts through us today. And we saw in our first week that Jesus promises that his disciples will receive power. He says, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you'll receive power to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now we come to this amazing story, chapter 2, where that promise is fulfilled. And indeed, that idea of filling, 
of fulfillment is the prominent picture in this passage. It begins by saying, when the day of Pentecost arrived, or literally was fulfilled, fulfillment, and then verse 2, this sound, this rushing wind, the Spirit, filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here, the picture is of fulfillment and filling as the promise of Jesus that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit uh, now comes to its fruition on this day of Pentecost. And I want to say this. I think this passage, and indeed I hope this sermon, is one of the most, uh, this passage, one of the most significant passages in the Bible. And this sermon for us as a church, one of the most uh, significant ones Um, I'm going to preach for some time, I think. Because Acts chapter 2 is so important. It's so important because it's a matter of controversy. It's a matter of controversy not so much in our church, but in the church at large. Uh, All sorts of different movements have grown up about different interpretations about these few verses. Ever since Azusa Street Revival and the beginning of the 20th century, there's Pentecost movement and then the Pentecostal movement and then the the charismatic movement in the mid-20th century and then the third wave charismaticism with John Wimber and the Vineyard movement and on and on. There is a controversy in the church at large about how to interpret Acts chapter 2. So we need to be clear. It's important then, this passage, that we're clear about what it, what it means and what it doesn't mean. But more than simply clarity, this passage is important for us because surely of all times in human history, right now, God's people, particularly in the West and America, sense a need for a great new filling, a fresh empowering for witness. So we're not on the back foot anymore. But moving forward with boldness and witness and seeing hundreds and thousands of people come to know Jesus. And surely there is a great need, isn't there? A great need for a fresh filling with the Spirit of Jesus. And so I've called this sermon this morning filled with the Spirit of Jesus or filled by the Spirit of Jesus. For that, I think, is the intention of this passage. Well, how then are we not going to be confused but move towards clarity? Well, what is our, going to be our interpretive grid for this passage? Often it's presented to us merely in terms of a binary option. It's either this way of interpreting it or that way. We're told that uh, one way of interpreting it is that the day of Pentecost is simply something that happened. It's an unrepeatable event. It happened. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. It's done. It just happened. That's one option that's presented to us. Another option that's presented to us, or really the only other option that's usually presented to us, is instead of it being something that happened and it's an unrepeatable event, instead it's presented to us as something that's happening over and over again, exactly the same. It's happening. But I want to say to you that the biblical way of interpreting it, and I think when you hear it, you'll resonate with this being a true way of reflecting the the, the Bible's balance on this matter, is there is a third option. And that third option is, yes, indeed, it is something that happened. There is an unrepeatable element to it. Jesus died, he rose again, and fulfillment and the promises in the Old Testament and his promise in chapter 1, he poured out his spirit on his people. There is an unrepeatable aspect to the day of Pentecost. So, yes, it is something that happened. 
But the day of Pentecost is not merely something that happened in the past. When the Spirit came, a door was opened to a new room, as it were, for God's people. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, put it like this, that after Pentecost, God's people entered into the age of the Spirit. And that's where we are now. We are in the age of the Spirit. And that's why when you read through the book of Acts, not only do you see them being filled with the Spirit of the day of Pentecost, but other times they are filled with the Spirit again. Because now they're in the age of the Spirit, and being filled with the Spirit is open to all God's people who repent and believe and put their trust in Christ. They may be filled again. And as Peter puts it in Acts chapter 4, because Jesus died and rose again and ascended on high, now times of refreshing may come upon you, may come upon us, may come upon God's people. We live in the age of the Spirit. A door has been opened by the day of Pentecost, an unrepeatable event, But it opened a door whereby now we're in the age of the Spirit and we may be filled again with the Spirit and times of refreshing may come again. So that's my interpretive grid. And the sermon is going to be structured then around this filling, which is the key picture in this passage, and is the key element that is now open to us in this age of the Spirit. It's going to be structured like this for your notes, and I hope you'll be able to easily remember it in your mind as you listen to me, Uh, what they were like before they were filled with the Spirit. It's going to be the first part of the sermon. Then what they're like after they're filled with the Spirit. It's going to be the second movement of the sermon. And then how we may now be filled with the Spirit, which of course is the most important part. So before, after, And then now. So first of all, before. What were they like before they were filled with the Spirit? Well, it's fascinating what they were like. Uh, To begin with, uh, in chapter 1, as we saw, they start by asking the wrong question. Chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking an obscure question, as John Calvin put it about that question. There are as many errors in that question as words they're completely offbeat. They don't understand. They, they miss the point. And they're, they're fascinated about when Jesus is going to come again. And they're looking up into heaven. They're, they're fascinated by an obscure theological debate. Not focus on mission. And that's what Christians, that's what God's people are like when they're not filled with the Spirit. Theology is important. We, we have, we're studying Wayne Grun's systematic theology on Wednesday night. We study theology every time we gather together. Theology is important. But when you're not filled with the Spirit, you become fascinated by secondary issues, tertiary issues, unimportant issues, issues about which only the Father knows the time and date that is not given to us to know, things that are divisive, controversial. We become law people, not spirit people. We become legalistic, judgmental, divisive, and we use theology to that end. That's what it's like when you're not filled with the Spirit. That's what they were like before they were filled with the Spirit. But in addition, before they were filled with the Spirit, they were all a sort of holy huddle in the upper room. There they are, verse 13, in the upper room. 120 disciples, they're just gathered together. A small little group. It's just about them. 
And the world's doing its own thing. But they're gathered together in their little upper room. And they're concerned about themselves. And they're introverted. And they're stuck in their little group of 120. And they're scared of what's going on outside. They're not engaging the culture. They're not engaging the world. They're not trying to reach people. They're not not on mission. They're a holy huddle in their little upper room. And the door is shut. And that's, that's what we're so often like when we're not filled with the Spirit. We're just... Just a holy huddle. And then what are they doing when they're in that upper room? Well, we're told the primary concern they have, which in many ways is a good concern, but it's their primary and almost only concern, is who should be the apostle or replace Judas after Judas has died. And they have this discussion and they establish right and true principles that an apostle of Christ needs to be someone who has seen that Jesus rose from the dead and saw the resurrected body of Christ and was with them, so heard Jesus' teaching. And they, they discover there are a certain number of those who fill that, fit that category and then they decide that they'll randomize it they, they draw lots because God is sovereign and he'll make the choice through this randomizing principle. And, and that's fine and it's good. But it's, it's all they're concerned about in the upper room. Just the bureaucracy of church. The machinery of church. Before they're filled with the spirit, they're, they're stuck on obscure theological debates about how many angels can, hit, can fit on the head of a pin, about secondary tertiary issues which divide people, which is not clearly given to us in scripture. They're stuck there and they're just stuck in the upper room. They're in a holy huddle and they're not concerned about the world. They're not concerned about engaging culture. They're not concerned about mission. They're just a holy huddle. And what they're really concerned about is the bureaucracy of church, the machinery of church. What they're doing really is spending all their time in a committee meeting. Sounds so like church sometimes, doesn't it? Arguing about secondary issues, a little holy huddle, tons and tons of time in committee meetings. Not engaging the world outside, not engaging the culture. Well, that's what they were like before they were filled with the Spirit. But then after they're filled with the Spirit, look what happens. And they begin to speak in tongues. Of course, this is the controversial part of the passage, but it doesn't need to be controversial. The the word tongue... In English language, used to only really have two meanings, and does in the Greek as well, and that is the physical tongue and then language. So when it says they spoke in tongues, it means they're speaking in other languages. Now, there are two areas in the Bible, two parts of the Bible, where this gift of tongues is described. One is in Acts preeminently in Acts chapter 2, but it also appears elsewhere in the book of Acts. But then also in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches about the gift of tongues, that it is uh, not as important as some other gifts, uh, that not everyone has the gift of tongues, some do, some don't, that whenever the gift of tongues is used, it must be translated. 
But he describes it in a way that's somewhat different, it seems to many people, than in Acts chapter 2. So some people wondered, are there really two different kinds of gifts of tongues in the New Testament uh, as, uh, as the New Testament unfolds? And there's a lot of conversation about that in scholarly biblical circles. In my understanding, the way I look at it is, there's an overlap between the description of 1 Corinthians and the description in Acts. So when Paul talks about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians, he, descri- he says, if I spoke in the tongue or the language of men or of angels. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, they're speaking in the tongues of men, they're speaking Arabic and in the language of the Cretans and the, uh, and the Medes and, uh, and, and, and the Arabs. They're speaking the language of men. But there's also, First Corinthians describes, a kind of tongue that is like a private prayer language. It's the language of angels, I suppose you could put it, as Paul describes it there somewhat poetically. But I think there's an overlap. So when here they speak in the language of tongues... You've got to imagine the scene. There are people, and in that situation where people gather all from around the world to Jerusalem for the great feast day of Pentecost, people would have been able to converse together because they would have known Aramaic, the common language of the, the Jewish people at the time. They would have, some of them would have known Hebrew, the language which the Old Testament was written. All people, most, just about anyone in the Eastern Empire would have known Greek because it was the lingua franca of the, of the Eastern Empire, of the, of the Roman Empire. So they would have been able to speak to each other. But when the Spirit came, what happened? Now they speak in the heart language of the people they're called to reach. Now they speak in their mother tongue, in their native language, in their heart language. Now they're speaking in a way that communicates with clarity to the people around them. And you would have heard them saying, look, they're speaking in my language. But then at the end of, of this passage, you also hear them saying, well, aren't they, uh, uh, it sounds like a, a, a babble to me. That sounds like they're drunk because the Arab would have heard the part that was Arabic, but would not have understood the part that was in the language of the, the, the Parthians or the Medes. And the Medes would have understood the part that was in their, their language, but would not have understood the part that was in the Arabic language. And so some of it would have yeah, I understand that heart language, but others it would not have been in their native tongue and perhaps overlap with First Corinthians. Even some would have been in the language of angels. That This private, perhaps, I don't know. Now, some people are what are called cessationists. That is, they believe that the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, have ceased with the closing of the canon, that is, the closing of of uh, the, the last uh, New Testament, the last book uh, written in the Bible. And that's an honorable position. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of my great heroes, was a cessationist. I myself am not a cessationist. So I don't believe that the Bible explicitly teaches that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased. I, I haven't uh, observed it myself, but I'm even told that on the mission field, there have been well-reported instances when someone's speaking in tongues, when the, the mission group that they're trying to reach will suddenly realize that they're speaking in the native tongue, the heart language of the people they're trying to reach. I haven't heard that myself, but I've t- I'm told there are well-reported instances of that happening. And I also know there are many Christians who speak in tongues as a private prayer language. And I don't want to forbid that. Paul says, 
Do not forbid speaking in tongues. I don't want to forbid that. But you see, all that is really not not the point of this passage here in Acts chapter 2. The point of this passage, see, before the Spirit comes, we describe that. Now, after the Spirit comes, when the Spirit comes, what happens? They now start speaking in the language of their hearers, their mother tongue, their heart language, their native language. That's what happens when the Spirit comes. You know, I was... um, uh, a missionary for a little, uh, a little bit of time, and w- one particular area of, uh, of the world where we were doing mission work, uh, there were a group of people who were trying to reach another ethnic group, and there was a common language that both ethnic groups understood, and they tried to reach them using that common language, and one of the people from the ethnic group they were trying to reach was converted, came to Christ, and he was discipled. And he was trained, and he was called to be a pastor. And this person who'd been converted from the other ethnic group then began to preach in the heart language, the native tongue, the mother tongue of the people of that ethnic group. And hundreds of people came to Christ. Because now you're speaking in my heart language. Now you're speaking in my native tongue. That's what happens when the Spirit comes. That's, that's, why, that's why we have the Bible in English. Because a man called William Tyndale, God got hold of him, filled him with his Spirit, and at great risk to his own life, and indeed became a martyr for the cause, translated the Bible into English. And now we have the Bible in our own, in our own heart language, in our own native tongue. And that's what Hudson Taylor did in China. That's what William Carey did in India. And when the Spirit comes on us as an individual, on us as a church, we will increasingly speak the heart language of the people around us. We'll speak the heart language of the people in Wheaton. We'll speak the heart language of the people in Carrollstrina, DuPage County, in Chicagoland. We'll speak the heart language of those we're trying to reach. That's what happens. That's what happened to them after the Spirit came. But not only that, after the Spirit came, God gathered this multi-ethnic group of people, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and Libya and Cyrene and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, all this panoply of the multi-ethnic People of God called together. And this early church in Jerusalem moved from being a mono-ethnic group of Jews gathered together in the upper room debating obscure, theologically divisive issues concerned about the bureaucracy of the church to being a multi-ethnic group multi-ethnic group that's there's a prototype of the universal church of Jesus and after the spirit comes when the spirit comes the barriers between different ethnic groups the barriers between different races will start to break down and diminish As God calls to himself people from every tribe and nation and language 
That's what happens when the Spirit comes. But get this, when the Spirit comes also, they become bold, courageous. We didn't read this part in our passage. We finish, finished with verse 13. But they're mocking them, they're, they're teasing them, they're sneering at them, they're mocking them, they're filled with new wine. And Peter, remember, Peter, who ran away, who'd been scared, now he's filled with the Spirit, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's the only the third hour of the day. It's too, too early for them to be drinking. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh. A new door has opened into this age of the spirit. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He, he's now bold. And after the Spirit came, they became bold. They became witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when the Spirit comes on a congregation, when the Spirit comes on an individual, we become bold witnesses for Jesus. I may not have all the answers. I may not have a theological degree. I may not yet have gone to the Wednesday night Bible study where they're studying groom systematic theology. <laughs> I may not be able to tell the difference between all these long words and theological, but, but I, when the Spirit comes, I know what Jesus has done for me. I know that he saved me. And I'm going to go out and tell people. I may not have all the answers, know how to disciple my child for, for Jesus, but I know I love him, I know Jesus loves me, and I'm going to pour my life into my child for the sake of Jesus and disciple him. I'm bold now for Jesus when the Spirit comes. Now, of course, the great question is, we looked at before and after, but the great question, of course, is, what about now? Before, after, now. What about now when the Spirit comes? Well, remember, we've, we've described how in our interpretive grid of this passage that, that it's not just what happened and it isn't happening exactly the same again. It's something that happened that opened a new door for the age of the Spirit where we'll be filled with the Spirit. It's is something that's open for all followers of God. And remember that there's a difference because this is a story between things that are merely descriptive and things that are prescriptive. And not everything that happened here is prescriptive. Some of it is merely descriptive. It's something that happened, but opened a new door, this age of the Spirit. But then the question is now, how then can we now be filled with the Spirit? And I think here Luke has indicated three elements, and I'm just going to give you three words. First word expect expect we don't know exactly what they were doing when the day of Pentecost arrived um, people often assume they're praying because we're told they're praying earlier in the story they may have been praying they may have been singing they may have been preaching what we do know is they were expecting they've been told by Jesus to wait and a moment will come when they be filled with the Spirit. There's an expectancy. And that day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, 50 days later, the last great feast day, uh, the next great feast day, when people will be gathered, that as John Calvin put it, God 
use this next time when there were hundreds and thousands and thousands of people gathered together in Jerusalem, the next great feast day, he used this day for the maximum fame for Jesus as they declare the glory of God and all this clarity in the heart language of God's people and they're expecting. Are you expecting? Do you expect? Do you expect God to fill you? Are you looking for a fresh filling of God's spirit? You say, I'm too old. Old men will dream dreams. You say, I'm too young. Young men will see visions. Do you expect? You say, I'm not a theologian, nor was Peter. Do you expect? And then, second word, gather. Expect, gather. We don't know, as I said, exactly what they were doing on the day of Pentecost, but we do know that they were together. It says they were all together in one place when we gather in worship together. Do you expect to be filled with the Spirit, sent out with boldness? Expect, gather, and then the third word, receive. The Spirit came like tongues of flame on each of the individuals as they were gathered. Expect, gather, and they didn't resist or reject the Spirit. They received the Spirit. And as they were filled with the Spirit, they became empowered witnesses to Jesus. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, declaring the greatness of God. Oh, our Lord God, we do pray that you would do that for us as well. Lord, we know that there are parts of the day of Pentecost that are unrepeatable, unique. And yet, Lord, we also know that you promised that there'll be times of refreshing that would come because of the day of Pentecost. And we uh, boldly bow before you in expectancy and pray, Lord, that these would be one of those times that you would fill us in fulfillment of your promise with the fullness of your Spirit. As we gather, we receive. Amen.